O God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with a great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. That is the collect appointed for today, the seventh Sunday after Easter, May the 19th, or 29th, sorry, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We had a good week this week. Suzanne and I um, had dinner with one of our favorite people in the world on Tuesday night, and then um, had or lunch, actually, with um, another good friend on Wednesday over in Dillard, Georgia, and we stayed a couple of days over there. It rained all day one day, but it was fine because um, we were going to go hiking and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? It's sometimes you got to adjust your plans as you go, and you, things you can't control, you just work around them. So what we did instead was there were several wineries in the area, and so we went from uh, to a couple of those and enjoyed the afternoon very much. Um, not too much, though. Uh, <laughs> take my word for it. We didn't enjoy it too much. We, we moderated what we did. So anyway, we had a great day, uh, a couple of days over there, and then had a nice drive back yesterday over through the mountains and highlands and cashers down through Lake Toxaway and Brevard. It was a really nice drive back. It took about an hour longer to get back that, that way, but it was a very pleasant way of getting back. So anyway, we had a good couple of days. We we're feeling good and energized and going to see, uh, try and get a video out this week on the Friends of Will Green page on Facebook. Um, uh, just, just to kind of catch people up on what the Lord's been doing in our lives and how we've seen God confirm so many things in our lives. But the lessons today, um, we are, you know, Ascension was Wednesday or Thursday of this week, and then we have Pentecost next week, which seems pretty much impossible to believe, uh, but it is. So we, we're uh, a week away from Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit um, on the disciples as they gathered together in Jerusalem on this day, which is called Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks in um, Jewish uh, religious parlance. So anyway, so we're going to talk today, we want to talk about what does it look like and what does it mean to to have somebody or something steal our joy. And, and it's important throughout all this, and what's the antidote for that? And, and that's got something to do with uh, every one of these lessons. It's going to begin with an interesting thing in the Acts lesson. So we're in Acts 16, verses 16 to 34. So now, th- listen to the pronoun, as we were going to the place of prayer. So Luke is the author, same Luke who wrote the gospel. This is his second book. It's the Acts of the Apostles, the continuing work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in the, in the lives of the apostles and other believers. So we're going to see that. So Luke has now joined Paul and Silas in part of the action because before they went to Philippi, there was a break between Paul and Barnabas. They had an argument over John Mark, and and Luke was or not Luke. Paul wasn't willing to restore him and take him along on the journey. So so Barnabas and John Mark went their way, and then Paul and Silas, who is now his companion, go to Philippi. And they, they take Luke along with them. So he says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, what is this spirit of divination? It's a very particular spirit of divination. Actually, it's called the spirit of Python. 
and that re- relates to Greek mythology about Apollo, the god, who was sort of the, the favored god among the people and, and was, was known throughout this whole area through the Greek system and the Hellenizing, which is the, the making things Greek. So Greek would have been the primary language. That's the reason the, Old, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, and it's the reason we have the, the Greek Old Testament, which is a translation, a direct translation of the Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, and so there's 70 books, so they translated the 70 books, and those become the Septuagint. And so that's the Greek translation by a group of rabbis of the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek. So, so Greek was the lingua franca. It was the language of commerce. Everybody spoke it. In order to get along in the Roman Empire and, and to make progress, you needed to be able to speak Greek. And so the, the Greek gods had a particular sway because they had been the things that were worshipped. And so Apollos, who is the child of Zeus, um, is four days old, right? So he comes down to a town, at Delphi, which is Corinth. So comes down at four days old, sees unhappiness in the place, and says, what's going on here? And there's a little boy, particular, that he meets who tells about this serpent who lives in a cave, and that serpent then puts out poisonous stuff into the air through its mouth, and, and it bewitches the people and makes them miserable. Just people, though, because it talks about things like a happy river, flowing through the place and so it's everything it's only humans that this affects and so it guards the cave at delphi and it hangs out in the deep recesses of the cave whenever it feels threatened it goes back there so that it can can get somebody unaware but there, there are oracles that come from delphi and so what's happened is the oracles that are coming from Delphi are not helpful to the people. They're harmful to the people's well-being. So Apollos goes to another god, Hephaestus, which is also known as Vulcan in the Roman pantheon, and gets Vulcan to make some specific kinds of magical arrows and, and a bow, and then goes and shoots this thing thousands of times and finally kills it, and then he takes over the oracles of Delphi. So he takes over, and now he's the god of that thing, and so people can come there, and there's a woman there called a Sybil, and that Sybil, middle-aged woman, will take your sacrifice, if it's acceptable, and then go into the cave and, quote, divine what's going on. So it's divination. So they, 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 want, they want to give you an answer. It's, it's like a going to a medium or going to a fortune teller kind of a thing, but but the thought is one of two things are happening in this cave. One of those things is the potential that there were these gases that came up and sort of put these people into a place of ecstasy. The other is they burned some, quote, herbs, which might include things like, well, ganja. And <laughs> then they come out with a word. So now that Apollos is over it, it they're, they're way more friendly, let's say, towards the people. And so it, that lasted until about 362 A.D. is the last known oracle that comes from this place. So that's the, the milieu into which this all occurs. So this girl has a spirit of divination or this python spirit. And once Apollo slayed the spirit, by the way, people became happy and rejoiced and sang songs and worshipped 
the God for the fact that he had brought happiness into the world again. I mean, there's a lot of Harry Potter imagery in that. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you can hear that. You can hear the Death Eaters. You can hear all these images in there where joy needs to be restored to the world. These things come that, that can take all the joy out of the world and out of your soul. So then what has to happen? So anyway, so this girl has brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that sounds like a good thing to have a camp follower saying this. But the problem is it's like Jesus telling the demons to shut up. He didn't want the testimony of demons because that brought glory and honor to them for knowing truth. And, it's, and, and they do know the truth. They testified to the truth. But the thing is, is that, it, that it, in, in confessing that, their belief was it took away his power. And it did take away his glory. And here we see the same thing. She's operating in this spirit of the python, this Pythian spirit, and, and it's bringing gain to her owners in much the same way the spirit of the oracles of the Delphi would bring them gain because people wanted to know things. So so Paul turns, and she kept doing this many days. So Paul's very patient with this because you'd get pretty tired of this in a pretty big hurry, to be honest with you. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, remember this spirit of the python thing. The, the initial slaying of the python required special bow and arrows to have been gotten from another god, and it required him to shoot it thousands of times. Here Paul turns and just speaks to it. He doesn't ask it for its name. He doesn't want to know anything about it, because none of that is important. He is simply rebuking and commanding in the name of a greater power, Jesus Christ, to come out of her. Too often in in certain kinds of contexts today, there's this great thing in exorcism circles to find out the name of a demon. The name of the demon doesn't matter. Jesus only asked one time, and that was so his disciples would know there were many demons in order that they would know his power to overcome those many demons. Don't waste your time trying to determine what a spirit is and then understand the spirit. No, command it in the name of Jesus to come out. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So what are they going to say? Are they going to say, hey, he cost us a bunch of money by throwing out this spirit? No, not at all. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. I'm sorry. What did that have to do with what had happened? Well, nothing. But if you want to whip up a mob, you can't say, hey, she's costing us, it cost us money that he did this thing. No, it's got to be something bigger than that. There's got to be a larger uh, agenda that they have to be able to buy into because, well, hey, we're defending our honor. And that's what they did. They advocate customs not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. You know, they're Jews and they're disturbing our city. They're not disturbing the city at all, they disturb their commerce. So the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
not sure for what, what they intended to do with them, but having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. In other words, so he put them in, in, the, in the inner portion of the prison, further away from the, the, the doors of the prison, and then fastened their feet into the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now, we see these earthquakes on multiple occasions. We see another earthquake like this when Peter and John are in prison after the uh, the, the Sanhedrin threw him in there in um, Acts 5. But this earthquake happened so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped, because the Romans were going to kill him anyway. So his thought was, I'll go ahead and get it done now. It'll be a lot less painful if I do it myself. So Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Interesting question. Really interesting question, but what is the girl saying, right? These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So had he heard this girl proclaiming this, or had he heard other things? It's the same question the Jews ask on the day of Pentecost. We're going to see that next week. What must we do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. I'm sorry? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, that's the name of power, the name in which that other thing had been cast out. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Seems really simple, right? I mean, do, does he know that? What does he know of the gospel? And so we, we don't know. So he says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. So uh, it's, here's what you have to do to be saved. Now let me tell you what that means is exactly what happened. He gave the short answer first and then explained what it would mean to believe in Jesus. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He had believed in God's, plural, before. Now he believes in God, singular, and Jesus Christ, the one who is sent by the Father, the one who is one with the Father. And he rejoiced. And so this guy, who was absolutely in despair, rejoices now because he believes in the name of Jesus, because he has heard the gospel. He recognized his need of the gospel, heard the gospel, responded to the gospel with faith, and becomes one of the pillars of the Philippian church. He is the first male we hear about in Philippi at all. And God used the situation of Paul and Silas to reach this jailer and make him one of the first men in the church at Philippi. So what looks like a terrible thing, Paul and Silas getting beaten and thrown into prison, they go there, they're rejoicing. Remember that that's what's the problem with these oracles of Delphi, with this spirit of the python. It takes away all joy. And so Paul and Silas have no problem with joy, even though they've been beaten and put into prison. They're rejoicing because they have the Holy Spirit. They have salvation. They have the joy of the knowledge of Jesus. And so their joy then means remarkable things happen. And then the Philippian jailer rejoices along with them. And then when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says it again and again and again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And he speaks about joy all the time. There's a reason he's speaking about joy. Because this God thing 
was there, and it takes away joy. And so Paul knows that the gospel brings joy, and it's a lasting joy. It's a joy that doesn't depend on circumstances because we know that he has overcome all things, including death. So it's really important stuff that, we're, that we need to see in this. And in the gospel today, Jesus is praying. At the, this is the end of his high priestly prayer where, before he goes out and is arrested. So he says, I don't ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, me and you. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So what does this, this oneness look like? It has a particular characteristic, and it's, it's the life of the Trinity. It's the mutual indwelling of the brethren and the sisters in the same way that Jesus has the Father in him and he in the Father. We're supposed to have that kind of, of joy and that kind of fellowship with one another through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. When we recognize that in one another, then we are intended to express and participate in and experience the life of the Trinity and as that life is then broadened. But he, he wants this particular oneness, not that we just have one mind among us, but that we have one heart as well. Because we have one aim, which is the glorification of the Son and the Father. And so that's our aim. That should be our aim as Christians. However, other things get in the way, and they steal that unity, and they steal that joy. We focus on minor things instead of major things. Our lives aren't aligned with the purposes of God. Our lives are aligned towards our own desires, whatever those may be. Some might be, you know, good things but but we this mutual indwelling this mutual joy that we're intended to have in that unity is compromised to the extent that our agenda doesn't line up with the agenda of Jesus he says he says that i want them to be one as you and the as just as you father are in me and i in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me our unity in him is a proclamation of the gospel bringing about the glorification of Jesus because that then they believe that you, the Father, the one true God, are the source of all this because he sent the Son on this mission to rescue humanity. But the main mission was to glorify God in the eyes of those who were created in his image. The glory says that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. It's a completed action to be perfectly one. That's what Jesus is saying, is, is that this thing, to, to finish, it's a finished reality. This perfectly one. But it's only possible through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then the subsequent alignment of God's people with God's purpose, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the world will know there's two effects of this unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you loved me Be because of Jesus. He loves us because we believe in the Son. And then he continues, Father, I desire. And that word, by the way, is, is not simply a vague or fond hope that Jesus said, I desire. No, it's very forceful. 
When the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean, Jesus responds, I will, which is the same word, be cleaned. And it happened. So it's not just Jesus' fond hope. No, it's a desire that has the force of making that thing happen. And so that desire is fulfilled by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So I desire this means I have the plan of action for how it will be. In other words, it's not just some, you know, okay, hey, I hope you get healed. No, it's I will, I desire is the same word, exactly the same word. I desire it. And if Jesus desires it, it becomes a reality, which is an expression of his unity with the Father. He says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And that's ultimately in the eschaton, in the end times. So he's pointing to that place of the end times. So he desires we be with him, and he's already said, Father, I go, to a, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. So when he says, I desire that they also may be where I am, then what he's saying is, is that, that we have the way of making it happen, that they will be there to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so this foundation of the world, that word there for foundation, is more properly this way. That, that it's, it's, it's a casting, is, is the, the root of the word, has to do with casting. And so it, it is something that is cast according to a blueprint. In other words, from the beginning, this is the way it was going to be. It was the, it's the, things are the way they are because of the design. And the design was followed perfectly because he spoke it into being in the same way that Moses was commanded to follow God's instruction for the building of the tabernacle exactly and to the letter. Don't draw outside the lines. It had to be exactly the way God intended it. And the world was created exactly the way he intended it. He knew it was going to be messed up. And so the plan for the salvation of humanity was in place at the time the world was created God chose to create it anyway, knowing that the solution, the sending of his son, was there. The substructure of the foundation, that, that, that translation, is that which determines the entire direction or destination of everything that follows. So Jesus is the principle of creation. He is the foundation stone of creation. In the first lesson, when I talked about the oracles of Delphi, the Greeks believed that was the center of the earth, the foundation stone of the world. And so the wisdom that comes up out of that is coming up out of a goddess. And that goddess's name is Gaia or earth goddess. Here, Jesus says the foundation is me. And the world was founded on the love the father had for the son. So that's the thing that's really important, that, that, that joy and love were at the foundation of the world. And, and knowing that changes then the way we relate to the world and the way we understand everything about the world because now we know that a good and loving Father created it all. And because we know that, we can rejoice no matter what our circumstances are because we know we live in a kingdom ruled by a loving Father. No matter what it looks like, 
we know ultimately he, the recapitulation of all things will happen. A new heaven and a new earth will come, and that new heaven and new earth will be a complete, final, and perfect expression of God's love. His goodness, His mercy, and then in that, we will rejoice in that new creation. But we participate in that new creation now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we should, as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because we know him. We know the foundation of the world. We know the principle on which the world was founded, and that is love. The Father's love for the Son. He goes on to pray. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. And if I know him, then I know the goodness of the one who sent him. So I can rely on his character because he's expressed it and shown it to us in his son. In the taking on of flesh and dwelling among us and the taking on of sin and taking, making that sacrifice and going to the throne of the Father as the lamb looking like it was slain. So we know, we know the character of the Father because we know the Son. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus is going to continue the work of making known what? What's he going to continue making known? The, the name of the Father, Yahweh, the great I am, that the love you have loved, which you have loved me, may be in them, and I, therefore, in them. It's a powerful statement of Jesus' message and his ministry on earth. Why did he come? Right, to bring glory to the Father. How does he do that? He accomplishes it through the cross, through the great love and mercy and forgiveness of God on the cross. And then we know that his sacrifice was acceptable because God raised him from the dead three days later. We know further than that because we've read the book of the Revelation. We know that when he ascends into heaven, he is the only one found worthy in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And therefore, honor and glory is ascribed to him in the same way that it is to the Father. We see that unity in the Trinity. And it's an interesting thing that in in Jewish theology, one of the things they'll say is the Torah was the blueprint for the world. So the Torah came first, and it explains the world to us. It explains our place in the world to us. So they believe that that it was the foundation of the world, and we say the Word, the Torah, became flesh and dwelt among us. And they also believe that the Torah and the Father are one. Does that sound familiar? I and the Father are one. It's Jesus' proclamation about himself. John goes to the Word, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And so the Word of God is equivalent to the Torah of God, and, and it brings light to the world. It is one with the Father, and it is the blueprint for the creation of the world. That's Jesus. In the final lesson today, it's in Revelation 22, verses 12 to 21, and the, the announcement of Jesus is, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. And, and that's a reward, quote-unquote, for, for what you've done. And that reward can go either way, and here it does, to repay each for what he has done. So that recompense can be either positive or negative. It can be blessing or curse, and it all depends on you. And believing in him is the work you need to do to get into heaven. But that belief can't rest at the level of intellectual assent to a proposition. 
No, it's got to be that which brings new life, makes you a new creation, a different person than you would be if he were not in you. If you did not believe that, you would be a different person. And that's what believing means. Believe means I I so accept this as true that it's going to guide everything in my life. It's going to guide the decisions I make and the direction I choose for my life. Every moment of every day, it's going to guard and guide the way I speak. It's going to guide the way I treat other people. It's going to guide everything that I do because it's for the glory of God. And I don't want to do anything to detract from the glory of God. So deeds matter. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And what does that mean? How do you wash your robe? Well, normally (laughs) you wash it with water, soap, bleach. No, wash your robes in the blood of Christ. Washing something in blood normally doesn't make it pure and white. The blood of Jesus has that property. And so we are intended to wash our robes, our lives, in the blood of Christ, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So we have the right to the tree of life, which means we have everlasting life, and we may enter the city by the gates. We don't sneak in. Nope. We come in the main gate with our heads held high because we're in Christ Jesus and we know the King. We're not here to slink around the sides of things. No, we're here to see the king. Outside, he says, are the dogs and the sorcerers, and, and that would apply to this, the, the spirit in this girl. And so when Paul commanded that to come out of her, it might have cost those people money, but it saved her because he commanded a demon spirit out of her. Wasn't a lying spirit. Some of the oracles of Delphi came true. Wasn't a lying spirit. It was it was a spirit that that had truth from the wrong source. So that she would have been a sorcerer here, <clears throat> and the sexually immoral. The word there is fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So in other words, all those things would steal your joy. All of that would steal your joy. All these people they they would tend to diminish life. In one way or another, the enjoyment of life particularly. And so he says those things are outside. They're gone. They're done. They don't get into the city of God in any shape, form, or fashion. So we can rejoice without having to worry about what somebody else might do, what somebody else might say. We're set free from all that. But we as Christians are set free of it now through the power of the Holy Spirit. We, We are in this world, but we recognize that we are sojourners in this world, that this is not our home. And so we're patient in suffering because we recognize that's the way of this world. And so we're able to see through all that and rejoice anyway. No matter what happens, we ought to be able to rejoice as Christians in all things, and including death. One of the things we did at Will's funeral was normally you say these words in the church and then you go out and only the priest says them and says all we go down to the grave yet even in our grave we make our song Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. That is absolute defiance to Satan. To say even at the grave we're saying Alleluia, Lord save us. Alleluia, Alleluia. And so what I did was we did that at the graveside and and I said, I want everybody here to say this with me and I want you to say it as loud as you can because it's a proclamation to the devil that he lost. 
period, end of sentence. He wanted this one. He can't have it. <clears throat> he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. So the spirit and the bride tell us to come. And then it's our job evangelistically to say, come as well. Because we've heard. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That's Isaiah 55. But it's also John 4, the woman at the well. It's also John 5, when he asks, when he begs people to come, offers that water. He said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So if you add to the words of this book, if you're adding to it, and men, I've seen people do that. He says, if you add to the book, then God will add to you the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, and they do that, by trying to redefine words, then God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. So you don't want to add or take away. Take things at face value. Take things the way they are. Don't add to it, and don't take away from it. If you add to it, God will add plagues. If you take away, God will take away your share in the tree of life. You don't want to lose your share in the tree of life. So preach the whole counsel of God in everything that you do. And I'm not talking just to preachers. I'm talking to every single person who witnesses. Don't hide from anything. He says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And the response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We are intended to rejoice. Don't let anybody or anything take that away from you. Because you are in Christ Jesus. And because of that, you know that these are not final answers. Difficulties are not ends. We don't know what God might do because all things are possible with him in this life. But even if not, we have eternity with him. The blessedness of rejoicing in his presence lying ahead of us for those who are in Christ Jesus. God bless you this day and this week.